Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant. We welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're having a nice weekend. Later, the folks from SOAR talk about their efforts to help flood victims in eastern Kentucky. Still an ongoing issue in our viewing area. But first, school bells are ringing. Classes are beginning for a brand new year. How safe are our schools here in Kentucky? The horrible shooting in Uvalde, Texas raised all kinds of questions about school security and how to respond nationwide. More importantly, how to prevent such nightmares. Mayors. Kentucky law now requires an armed officer at every school, but many districts are unable to comply with that rule right now. John Akers is a former high school principal who runs the Kentucky Center for School Safety based at Eastern Kentucky University. He joins us. Also here is the state security marshal. The marshal is Ben Wilcox. He is with us. Also has quite a background as a school security officer. Gentlemen, welcome. We appreciate you very much for coming Thank in. Thank you for having us. You know, the new school begins, uh, uh, John, uh, the situation in Texas still on the minds of uh, parents and teachers. Is there reason to believe that in America we have learned a lot from that issue uh, in that situation that happened and maybe things are, are a little bit uh, less likely to play out the way they did there? Uh, most definitely. Uh, we've learned lessons from Columbine, from Sandy Hook, and from Uvalde and all the other areas. Each time we pick up something new and and uh, uh, when the Uvalde situation occurred, one of the first things that came to us were the legislators saying, what can we do differently? And they said, well, we've done this for the last three years. We passed the School Safety Resiliency Act, and we've been implementing it for three years. And so we feel like we're better today than we ever have been. Are we perfect? The answer is always no to that, but we're sure further down the road than most places around our country. Ben, your thoughts on uh, where things are right now? Well, I completely agree with John. You know, the passing the School Safety and Resiliency Act in 2019 uh, gave the school so many tools to assist in school safety. Uh, created our office where we go in and actually do assessments on schools. Uh, uh, we've on our starting our fourth assessment this year. We've already been in the schools for three years, and as working directly with the schools, not only f making sure that the schools are following the mandates of the law, but also being a resource for the schools when it comes to school safety and security. And directly working with the Kentucky Center for School Safety to make that happen. Are those assessments uh, required or is that that request of a district? No, that is that is required. Our school assessments are required. We have on-site assessments of all locally controlled schools in the state of Kentucky. Fair to say that you come down on the enforcement end and you're more on the prevention end, but together uh, hopefully this all works to make the school safer, right? Yeah, and, that, you know, and I think that was the design of the General Assembly to have a compliance agency from the Department of Criminal Justice Training to do that access control uh, uh, assessments and ours where when Ben's group finds some things that uh, they need training on or whatever we will provide that so it's a hand-in-glove situation. Many schools have uh, said they cannot comply with that law right now. They can't find the officers or in some cases they can't afford uh, the uh, school resource officers. Uh, you have some good news in regard to how many schools are now in compliance and you won't tell us the ones that are not. That's right? correct. That's correct. And we do have some good news. We've, we've seen an increase of 20, 21% more SROs hired in the last three months since the passing of the law. That puts us over 50% of the school uh, campuses in the state of Kentucky covered by SROs. So the obstacles obviously are manpower or, or uh, hiring and then also funding. But seeing that increase so quick in, in uh, school districts and the police departments and sheriff's office going out looking for SROs and we're getting some hiring done, it's, it's very positive. 
you've publicized that, and you've also uh, kind of widened the net some, right, in terms of uh, who you're trying to recruit to be those school resource officers. Well, you know, and that's one of the things is that you can't just put anybody in school as a school resource officer. You've got to have the right people, and it seems like we're getting a lot of the right people coming forward to BSROs. Uh, a lot of folks are maybe retired and coming back to work or have a lot of experience on the street or experience in the schools and are, are coming in. And, of course, the training we provide at the Department of Criminal Justice Training is really uh, the icing on the cake. That's 120-hour certification for all SROs in the state. And that's not just police work. That's trauma-informed care. That's working with students with special needs. Because SROs are really a, a specialized unit more though than any other specialized in denial of, and I've got a career in law enforcement, is that it just takes the right people to do it, and I think the state of Kentucky is leading that pack of putting the right people into the schools. And yet you've had a challenge with getting young people interested in that job, right? They want, they want more action on the streets, so well, to speak. Well, you know, I don't know about that. I, um, we're getting a lot of, of retired officers coming in because it does maybe fit uh, some of the things that they're looking for, but at this point, it's it's, it's hard to hire uh, anybody right now. You know, people are looking for teachers, people are looking for police officers, but we've got a lot of young SROs as well. And Bill, something I wanted to add to that is that there's a frustration that I have in my office is that uh, the public sometimes thinks that any time that there's a police officer in a school that they are an SRO. That's not necessarily the, you know, the, you know, the situation there. It's a situation where maybe there's something that's happened on campus and they call for help from outside where they don't have an SRO. Then something bad happens, then all of a sudden SROs are bad guys because they made a poor judgment situation like that. What Ben's talking about, that these folks are sworn officers of the law first, then they go through 120 extra hours of training to learn how to work in the schools with those topics mm -hmm. that Ben was talking about. So just a police officer in a school doesn't necessarily mean that they're an SRO. And so we want to make that deal, you know, that delineation quite clear. We're learning that more department uh, schools are going ahead and forming their own police mm -hmm. departments, yes. right? Is that uh, a trend you suspect will continue? I think we're going to see a trend in there in that. And uh, I, th I think a lot of times the schools look at that. There's a little bit more control with the officers. The officers will work maybe 180 or 190 days, just like a teacher would. Uh, they give uh, an opportunity for um, a little bit more jurisdiction for the officers uh, to working within the schools, and it's they create their own department, then they get an opportunity to apply for grants and things of that nature, having a police department, so they could up apply for more officer grants and things sure. of that nature. I want to get each of you to respond to this. What about the role of students and parents themselves in, in trying to make schools safe, reporting what they see or suspect? How important is information in preventing uh, tough situations at schools? Absolutely critical, Bill, absolutely critical. If you do the math, like Ben was just talking, our schools are in session for about 175 days a year. We have the kids for seven hours a day, so that constitutes about 15% of a calendar year. So we only have them for, from theoretically 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock during those days. If something's going on in the communities or in the neighborhoods, whatever, we need to be told that to see something or if you hear something, say something. Thing. We have a tip line, a state stop tip line that, that we advocate on. Uh, that we get this information, or they could always call the school law enforcement groups that Ben was talking about, or the principal group, whatever. But if we can get ahead of the curve when it comes to issues like this, that helps us out. So when the parents have these kids 85% of the time, we need their help, period. We really need their help. Ben? 
And, and that's the thing is it takes everyone for safety. If we want to be 100% safe all the time, we have to use all our resources. And parents talking to kids, finding out what their fears are, finding out uh, what's going on at school, uh, you know, sometimes we have to ask. Our kids aren't just going to come home and just tell us. We have to ask about those things. And, you know, uh, with school shooters or critical incidents, we know that there's been leakage is what we call it, is that people have heard about things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, finding that out and then, and then, you know, using the tip line that we have in the state of Kentucky or contacting your school and telling them, talking to a counselor, that these are all things that we have to do as families, as schools, as law enforcement. Everybody has to be able to do that. And do you think schools do a good job in keeping those avenues open so that the students do feel confident in coming forward and, and feel that they can share information? Absolutely. I think they do a fantastic job. With the advent of the School Safety and Resiliency Act that add trauma-informed teams, with that, which added threat assessment teams, uh, there's counselors, you know, we're trying to get more counselors in the schools. We've got a lot of counselors in the schools. Those folks make it, I think, easier for the, the kids to come forth. But, you know, the law requires that they, we have at least one uh, adult in each school that uh, is connected to a student. A student can connect that adult. And making sure those adults are open to that is, is critical. And I think we're doing a good job of making sure that that custodian that knows that kid real well knows that they can talk to them and, and, uh, and help them when necessary. Tell me a little bit more about that. What, what do you mean a, a, a student has to be able to connect with an adult? What? Within within the School Safety and Resiliency Act, okay. uh, our goal is to make sure that there is a one adult for every kid, that a kid can go have a trusted adult in that school. And that may not be a teacher, that may not be the principal, that may not be the counselor, that may be the lunch lady, that may be the bus driver. What we want is to foster a um, a school that if a kid needs to talk to somebody they have that trusted adult to go talk to maybe a school resource officer when I was a school resource officer I had many students that trusted me and would come talk to me and, and could relate to me and that's just more people to talk and hear and, mm -hmm. and see what's going on and really um, we really need to know what kids fear and you know talking to them and understanding that makes school safer when we can address those issues and that's a goal to get one adult to every kid uh, we do assessments ourselves. That's more of a climate culture piece. Ben's is more the physical plant side of this thing. And we're finding that uh, elementary, most of the kids have somebody they can go to. Middle school, it wanes a little bit. It's about 85% to 90% the kids can go to an adult. The high school, it drops down to about 80%. Mm -hmm. And so when we do these assessments, we've assessed over 1,200 schools in our state. We're saying you need to pick up a little bit more in that area with your adults connecting with these kids a little bit more. And we don't want them to be buddies, but we want them to be that trusted adult that Ben was talking about that they can go to. Well, how is it when, need. How is it known when that connection is made? I mean, how do you know? How is there a record that this student has an adult? I don't know if you can keep a record of that, okay. other than teaching your staff that that's what they're there for. I look at it this way: you know, before a child even walks into a school and goes into the uh, room with their teacher, they run into a whole lot of of staff. They run into their bus drivers. They run into their you know the, the cafeteria workers. They run into to uh, their counselor. They may run into a custodian. You know, having that open relationship makes a school very, very safe because of the relationships. There. We've talked about this before. Uh, some who lash out indicate that they have been bullied in school in some way. Social media makes that so much more yes. easy to do. It's a different world than when we all went to school, right? Are things improving or are getting worse in that regard? Uh, I think it's getting worse. I think the invite or the invi uh, the uh, invention of social media, like you said a minute ago. Uh, has moved this from the schoolhouse 
to 24-7 online. And it's so difficult for school administrators to get in and help kids that are being bullied unless we are told about it. Because uh, sometimes kids won't report it. And so uh, that gets to be an issue. We want parents and kids to report it to us. But well, there's another issue here. If the kid's being bullied at 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, school administrators have a very gray area that we can get in there and talk with the kids and stuff. So the bottom line here is that the more information that we can get on who's being bullied, who's being harassed, uh, the better off we can get after it. But again, oftentimes we don't know it's not reported to us as school administrators. Ben, that has to be tough because on the one hand you want to tell the student don't pay any attention to that and go on with your life. At the same time, there may be information contained in that uh, that could uh, prevent something from happening. I think that also goes back to parents being involved with their mm -hmm. with their kids and knowing what's happening on that social media. That uh, you know, when when kids get bullied on social media, they may withdraw. Well, we need to find out what's happening so we can bring that out because it can only get worse. And so again, having everybody involved in that makes it much more safe. And that has a, another issue there too. That if the kid reports that I'm being bullied on my cell phone, sometimes parents will pull that cell phone away from the kid. And then that umbilical cord that goes to their social uh, connections with their kids has been cut off. And so sometimes kids won't uh, make that be known to their parents because they don't want to lose their, you know, their devices. We saw the National Guard respond so remarkably during the floods, you know, the, the rescues that nobody knew they were capable of kind of thing. But uh, that's an area where they had trained and drilled and knew what to do uh, if something like that ever came up, though we hoped it wouldn't, but it did. Is that the kind of what-if training uh, that also uh, needs to and does go on in schools? Absolutely. Um, Per the School Safety and Resiliency Act, the Department of Criminal Justice Training puts out uh, training on, we'll just say, active shooter response. And it's our training that uh, all staff that has connection with students or work with students has to watch. You know, what we want to do is take that hour for the training and make a plan. We want students, or I'm sorry, we want staff and teachers and everyone to sit down and say, if something happens, this is what we're going to do. Because if you do have a critical incident at a school, that's when you know it, your your emotions are heightened, and not having a plan is when you kind of crumble. But if you have that plan, you have something to come back to, and I think that's so so important. That's what we push out to the schools here in the state of Kentucky. And we just don't look at school shooters; we look at natural hazards, man-made hazard sure. issues. We have like 28 things that we have in our school's emergency operating plans that address each one of those issues. And so this is one part of it that catches probably 90% of the media's attention on that. But a missing child may not be something like that or a hazmat spill or things like this. That could have, you know, eventually affected school in one form or fashion. So this is the one piece that uh, is the most critical one because of the uh, tragedies that can occur with a person coming in with a gun. And that's the connection that the Office of the State School Security Marshal and the Kentucky Center for School Safety have. You know, when we started going in and looking at emergency plans and things like that, um, we don't have time to sit down and go through. We just see you have them. Well, we look at them and say, these need to be updated. These need to be fixed. You need to call Kentucky Center for School Safety. His group can come in and work on those. And we're seeing phenomenal emergency plans because of that collaboration that we have and getting those plans together and over a three-year period of time of going in and checking every year mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot better emergency plans which makes us very happy. Going forward now uh, does there need to be uh, more legislation uh, uh, maybe money for security officers uh, or, or what changes do you see in the in the, in the months and the year ahead? I would say um, we have a pretty good base as far as the law mm -hmm. is concerned as far as school safety is concerned. I would think uh, you know I use two terms one is compliance and one is commitment. 
So moving schools from we got to do the drills to where we want to do the drills, where we're teaching kids what we call situational awareness, know your surroundings. It just doesn't happen when the three, you know, when the three o'clock bell rings. They need to be concerned about possible shootings in their churches. They need to be concerned about malls. They need to be concerned about theaters and whatever. So we want to teach kids to be safe no matter where they go. And so I think those are areas that we can take. We already have the uh, structure for that. It's just a question of doing a better job at implementing that. We're really better today than we were three years ago, but down the road here, we hope to be even a little bit better so that people are more committed to this. And we're seeing that commitment. You know, it's not a checkbox. After three years, it's a commitment to do these things. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes us so proud about the state of Kentucky and the staff and the, and the um, teachers and everybody that's involved is that we're getting that commitment level. They know when we come in what we're looking for, and uh, it makes our job a lot easier when we're doing our assessments. Oh, very good. Let's hope for a safe school year ahead. Thanks, gentlemen, for coming. We Thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. Thank you, sir. We'll hear from the folks from SOAR. They're trying to help out in Appalachia with uh, the flooding situation out there. We're coming back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We welcome you back to Kentucky Newsmakers. It's been a month now since the awful flooding hit eastern Kentucky, but it will be many more months before the region will begin to resemble anything close to normal. The toughest part is that eastern Kentucky was already dealing with profound challenges before this thousand-year flood. SOAR, which stands for Shaping Our Appalachian Region, was working before the floods and is ramping up its efforts to improve the region after the flooding. They've even established a fund just for K-12 students. Joining us today, Source Chief Operating Officer Joshua Ball. Joshua, thanks so much uh, for speaking with us. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here, Bill. Uh, first, let's just talk about you know how big of a setback the floods are uh, to the forward momentum that you were attempting to build uh, in eastern Kentucky. There was excitement. Uh, we hope that uh, you know that can can return uh, fairly quickly, right? Yeah, Bill. I, th I think the, I think the key word there is hope, and and you know, looking at the numbers of the FEMA uh, declared counties, uh, you, you had a poverty rate of about 27 uh, percent uh, on average, which is which is almost three times uh, three times the national average. So, so many of the 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 folks that directly were impacted by the flooding were were, were already uh, living paycheck to paycheck and and, and dealing with uh, very 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 difficult. Uh, situations financially, but also uh, within their homes and their and their um, and their structures, and it, it's just utterly devastating to um, to look at the communities and, and just see uh, so many people hurting. But uh, the flip side of that is also seeing uh, the resiliency of, of really what community means, and, and Eastern Kentuckians and Kentuckians uh, taking care of one another, and 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 that has been a bright spot uh, yeah. in a very dark. Uh, past 30 days. Well, hats off uh, to the people in the region for, uh, as you said, uh, having that much uh, uh, stick to itness. And uh, how heartening has it been for people in the region to see that the the rest of the state does care, and uh, and and values the mountain region. Do you think that's been important to uh, to folks there? You know, absolutely, Bill. And you know, uh, when the uh, devastating tornadoes happened in uh, Western Kentucky, I think we all remember uh, the caravan of school buses, uh, you know, heading west with supplies and people, and and uh, you know that 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 was returned uh, as soon as this happened. And uh, you know, we realized that uh, there may be things we disagree with passionately uh, when it comes to uh, topics of the day, but when it comes to uh, helping one another. 
uh, Kentuckians and Eastern Kentuckians always step up, and, and I think we saw it really within hours of of of, of the flood happening. You, you saw churches ramp up, schools ramp up, nonprofits, and uh, that's really what we started to do as SOAR was really work as that collective backbone to support any and all efforts, uh, but also place a distinct focus on uh, a lot of the small mom and pop. Uh, businesses that were directly impacted uh, by the flood and really helped them figure out uh, what was next for them as they navigate the process of, of bank loans, yeah. SBA loans, and looking at the long-term recovery. What has that been like to kind of uh, you know wrap your arms around some of those uh, small business folks and say uh, there's going to be a tomorrow? You know, it's tough, Bill, to be honest with you. Like a lot of small businesses across America, not just in Appalachia, uh, it's it's tough being a small business. It's, it's uh, you know, you live in sometimes uh, paycheck to paycheck, day to day sometimes. And uh, so it was really important uh, for us as an organization to begin to work collaboratively with our partners. So, uh, you know, oftentimes when you're dealing with a natural disaster, any type of situation, there's a there is so much information out there and it's just so hard for those directly impacted to navigate it. So what we did at SOAR was work with our partners, specifically our CDFIs, which are Community Development Financial Institutes, uh, and the Appalachia, and the Foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky, uh, to streamline some of the emergency uh, loans that were available and also the grants that were available. So all seven of our organizations uh, work. That's the Small Business Minute, the, the Small Business Bill. Are we live? Yes, go ahead. Go keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what we did is we brought seven nonprofits together and we began to streamline information about emergency loans and grants. So instead of a business owner having to deal with seven different organizations to see what was a fit, we centralized all of that information in one location and we worked in the communities on the ground to relay that information and help businesses apply for loans and grants. So you've got the Small Business Development Center in Kentucky, you have Community Ventures, mm -hmm. Southeastern Kentucky Economic Development Corporation, the Mountain Association, uh, and SOAR. And, and I know you have most of those organizations, you have a link on your website uh, for folks to, uh, to, to get to those. Yes, well. absolutely, and that, that was really part of the strategy yeah. was to centralize that so that people could access it online and then while we were on the ground, yeah. uh, be able to hand that information to people as well. Joshua, let me ask you this. You're also encouraging people to support school students uh, in a separate fund that you've put together, and, uh, and that has taken off pretty well. Yeah, it has. Really, in the first uh, 10 days of the fund, we were able to raise uh, over $60,000. More importantly, we were able to get that, that money out the door. And uh, right now, the need is within schools. There were a lot of schools that were uh, that were destroyed, and some that uh, had partial damage. And uh, we're really working to help replace some of the technology loss that they had, be it networking, uh, laptops, Chromebooks, things like that. But we know uh, the need is going to shift in the coming months, and unfortunately, build years for students as they transition to different forms of housing. So this fund really helps uh, fill some of the gaps of bedding. Uh, computers, printers, uh, internet access, uh, appliances as, as students and their families begin to transition uh, to different forms of housing. So th this fund is intended to be here for a while and it's really intended to help meet the needs of students so that we can do everything we can in this difficult situation to make sure that students do not fall through the cracks and that as difficult as it is, we try to put everything in front of them to be successful. 
So I, I know that SOAR attempts to plan a more prosperous road ahead for, for 54 counties, nearly the eastern half of Kentucky, essentially. Uh, your goal, it sounds like, is to try your best to make this a detour, uh, not a dead end for, for people, and, and let them know that, that there, there will be continued efforts to make people whole and that hopefully they'll be able to stay in the, uh, in the eastern Kentucky region. Yeah, Bill, that was essentially while while we were formed, and 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 we truly believe that there's a future in Appalachia, and and as tough as it seems today for a lot of our counties, uh, there is a brighter tomorrow on the horizon, and uh, it's it's tough to see that now. But the people of Appalachia, Kentucky, the people of Central Appalachia, specifically Eastern Kentucky, uh, we have faith, grit, perseverance, and we are resilient. And uh, I think. The nation has been able to see that with some of the coverage. The state's been able to see that. And uh, the people of Eastern Kentucky, uh, we will rebuild. Uh, and I think it's important that, uh, that we use this rebuilding opportunity uh, you know, to make sure that uh, the 700, the 1,700 plus homes uh, that were totally destroyed and the more than 4,000 that are partially destroyed, uh, that we not only help uh, our friends and neighbors rebuild, uh, but we do it in a way uh, that really mitigates this from happening again, making sure that uh, we, we get folks homes that are, uh, you know, that are that are affordable, that uh, have proper uh, weatherization and things like that. And uh, we're thrilled to see that conversation happening. But housing is by far the most urgent issue uh, when you think of 1,700 homes destroyed and more than 4,000 partially destroyed, um, you know, in a rural area, right. that is that is utterly devastating. Well, there's a $212 million state uh, flood relief package uh, that's uh, coming as far as additional assistance, and uh, we're all hopeful that that will be uh, put to good use and is appropriately spent. Uh, quickly, uh, as we wrap up here, the SOAR Summit is coming up in Pikeville, October 19th and 20th, and you're going back to Corbin next year. Uh, I'm sure you uh, getting together is very important for the, for the SOAR folks. Yeah, it always is, and uh, we, we've got an agenda online, and uh, registration is open, and uh, we're, we're expanding the summit to two full days, uh, and we're also offering focus uh, sessions with workshops and uh, subject matter experts, and uh, we will be announcing some programming uh, specifically to uh, flooding and the long-term uh, relief and planning efforts uh, in the coming days and weeks. So uh, that is going to be a topic, and uh, we look forward to having a good conversation and bringing the people of Appalachia, Kentucky together uh, to celebrate where we're at and talk about where we want to go. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Stay Thanks. with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. One of our scheduled guests next week will be Kentucky Education Commissioner Dr. Jason Glass. That is Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you for joining us and make it a good week ahead.